I'm doing good. It's a nice day in LA, the end of summer, drinking some coffee, ready for a <laughs> chat about art, you know. Nice. Well, and you live in LA since a long time, or when did you move there? Yeah, I moved here 13 years ago. I've had my green card for 10 years. I moved out here for the film industry, been having fun amongst the palm trees and the sunshine and Sunset Boulevard and the whole thing. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. I'm very happy to chatting with you because, as you said, you are part of the film industry and you balance your time between films and creating digital art. So that's quite mm -hmm. interesting. And, and that is a very exciting topic these days, which is the Hollywood strike, which I guess yeah. you are familiar with. And I'm very, very interested in that topic because I've been reading about it. And I think today there was some sort of uh, resolution. They came to an agreement. That's what I was reading, but it's like I read that like a couple of hours ago. But can you tell us, Lawrence, what, what's happening? What is this strike about and how is it affecting the, the film industry in general? I mean, the strike w was for coming for a long time. It was about the way that, that royalties were getting paid out by streamers. It used to be that, you know, you did an episode of a TV show and you would keep getting royalties for years to come and they would be pretty good. They would be more than what you got paid for being there. When the streamers took over, they completely changed the business model and there was no royalties basically being paid out. So it was significantly less money that creatives were getting paid, like actors and writers. The streamers were just keeping that for themselves and their corporation and not paying out the creatives. So it was a creative, a stand for creatives and artistic work within the film industry. And also there was some contentious topics about AI too. I think the studio was trying to get around by scanning people but in particular they, they were just starting to try and scan extras and then sort of up you know work them into the ai algorithm and then just scan them one time and then they could use them in perpetuity forever which is not <laughs> i mean you can't just you can't do that you can't just own someone forever and probably not pay them very much for it so they put a stop to that but i mean it was interesting because it brought up a lot of different topics about AI and working with AI in our, in our day, because I think AI is such a new concept for a lot of people, and particularly outside of digital art, we're maybe more accustomed to talking about it. And we've seen the evolution of it, having paid attention to digital art for the last few years. We've seen how far it's progressed and different ways of working with it and the different programs and how to use them. But a lot of people haven't seen that. They haven't seen a ton of AI images either, even though there's accounts popping up all the time, some of which I think are interesting, but the, the point is it's a new thing for people. So the way in which to talk about what AI is and its different uses is being brought up to the surface. And it's a slow process of, I think, educating everybody as well, because it's not going away. It's not going to slow down, stop, or disappear because people are afraid of it. That's not how reality will work. It will continue to progress. And as long as we are as creatives on top of it and working with it, not everyone, not all creatives have to work with AI if they don't want to, but I think guiding it in the right direction. Because um, we're here now, and in the future, a lot of these things will just be what's been established by us. So it's important that we're sort of the bastions of ethical use of AI, which I do think is a possible and working with technology so that we don't all eventually become cyborg robots in, in the yeah. Star Wars dystopian future. Right, right. What you're mentioning, you're right that probably in the digital art space, we are 
kind of used to it by now because we have seen the evolution over the past two years how I mean it's been around for for more time but I think we started to see AI art more regularly over the past two years and then over the past year with all the progress it has been like mid-journey all these tools that you can actually create different kind of images very quickly it's like an explosion but we have been seeing it for for some time but when it comes to other industries I have a friend that is a lawyer and when he discovered ChatGPT and then it, he was crazy like wow this can actually create contracts like the things that it's taken me like a couple of days I can get a template that is 95% accurate mm. in a couple of minutes in other professions people aren't that familiar with it and also what you said about scanning actors there is an episode on Black Mirror um, yeah. about this with Salma Hayek and it's funny because I think that episode was recorded maybe one year and a half ago two years ago but the industry already saw it coming. And when it comes to AI in acting, uh, Lawrence, do you see it supporting actors and directors in different ways? And not necessarily like scanning yourself, but in other ways, like to learn, to study, to improve your practice as an actor. Have you seen any of that? We were having a bit of this discussion with my collaborator, Vincent D'Onofrio, in Twitter space the other day. And the interesting idea was brought up about Prometheus. Prometheus was punished for eternity for giving fire to humans. The gods tied him to a mountainside and punished him for eternity. And the AI was like fire, that we've been given fire. So if you're asking me, like, will AI support actors? Probably not. How do you use a fire? If you just let a fire run rampant in your home, it's going to burn the place down. But if you put it in the fireplace, it'll keep you warm. If you put it in an oven, it'll cook your food. So it's something to be handled with care and to be taken seriously. It's more like a weapon of art, to be honest. And that, that should be used with a lot of consideration. I've scanned myself for different pieces, and I've scanned Vincent for a couple collabs that we've done. But I would never like use the likeness of another actor without it being like a collaboration, mm. without it being their direct involvement. And that goes for say, living artists and things like that. I mean, references I use are classical references or in the public domain, too. So it's a bit like being a collage artist in that way. And I've always been pretty considerate if I've used any other poetry as well, which I have done in some of my early works, that it's been poetry that was in the public domain. It was published mm -hmm. before 1925. And if I've used any music, it's been licensed, things like that. I think all those ethical and, frankly, legal situations are really important to the whole dynamic so do i think it will support actors and directors i think actors and directors can use it as a very powerful tool and weapon of art that's right but it needs to be done ethically and with people's consent that's a good point you, you brought about using for your art things that were in the public domain i think there is a big difference there when you take poetry music images as well that are openly available that makes it kind of i don't know if the word is correct or right but at least legally it's right and lawrence we started talking a bit about the strike and you have been an actor for a decade now yeah i was looking at the you have an amazing history of films but also tv shows and shorts but what i'm very very interested about is, is your take or your perspective or how do you balance being an actor and being a digital, a digital creator, because I've followed you for, I think, two years now, and you are 
super active, if not one of the most active, you know, artists in the space, in a collector as well. You are also going to many events, going to exhibitions. So how do you balance getting into films, trying for roles, and when you have a role, which I guess takes several months or maybe a year, and creating art? How do you balance that, Lawrence? Well, the last role I did was David Hockney on HBO, which came out last year. And a wonderful time into our world as well, because obviously David Hockney is an iconic painter, and he's done a lot of digital art too, but just not any NFTs. It was actually fun going to set and showing people the art collaborations that I was doing, and I think everyone was pretty interested in also the fact that he, David Hockney was my late father's one of his best friends. They would talk all the time. Mm. Every week, they would, they would talk on the phone. That was just a, a fun time. The director found out after I'd gotten the job and we were discussing in rehearsals different references. He was sending me like David Hockney documentaries and stuff. And I was like, well, what about this one? The interview with my father. And he was like, what? <laughs> he definitely felt good that he'd, that he'd made an interesting casting choice. That was cool. And I think early in my acting career, I actually graduated drama school 17 years ago. But early on, I, I made a lot of independent films and dived into, yeah, I was sort of like as active as I am in the digital art world. I was that active in the independent film world. And I would go around to film festivals and support and champion other filmmakers and actors and, and also the films that I had in those festivals. And I was considered sort of an indie darling of that world. But I mean, so much has changed in, in the film industry from where it was. And if you had like a hit independent film 20, 30 years ago, it, it would catapult you to the next level. Um, and now I think you can build up a catalog of like 10 knockout independent films that are championed by critics and win awards at festivals and still the studios don't even blink it. Like it's mm. still the independent film world, I think is purely something that people do for the love of cinema. And I absolutely love that. I've done, I don't know, countless independent films and for like we were talking about over 15 years. Mm. But there does come a point, I think, where if you build up enough of where you can kind of sit back a bit and just see, I'd be happy if I died tomorrow with some of the roles that I've done for that to be a part of my artistic legacy as an actor. So yeah, I have my agent and I have a manager and I have interests from Hollywood is actually coming and knocking on my door a bit now with some of the people I'm mm. working with in digital art. So I don't need to chase it as much, which is does free up a lot of my time to chase digital art then instead. Mm. You know, gave up chasing one thing to chase another. But yeah, it's coming to me a bit more, which is great. And I can kind of pick my spots and really be considered about my next move. And yeah, so it, it, I yeah. did manage to fit it all in. Yeah. That sounds interesting. So thanks to digital art, you made some connections that actually helped you to get interest from the film industry and how did that happen like going to exhibitions going to shows or just by your online presence they approached you or how did that happen through digital art so if someone is very established at one particular thing mm -hmm. it's hard to get to them for that thing i think a lot of people know i'm working with vincent d'onofrio right now who's one of my favorite actors of all time and even with everything he's done, I still think he's underrated. Uh, right now, he's kingpin in Marvel Universe, but his career kicked off because of Stanley Kubrick and Full Metal Jacket, which will always go down as one of the most iconic films in history. 
and his work in the cell was just so transformative and should have won an Oscar for it. But if I'd approached Vincent with an acting role for a film role, there would have been so many considerations that he had to take in mind. It would have had to go through his agent, his manager. They would want a certain financial upfront. Yeah, you have to reach a very high level before even having that conversation with someone like Vincent. But because this is cutting edge digital art, new, and what I noticed, and this was key to the whole relationship and how it unfolded, was that he's been a passionate poet for, I don't know, like 20 years or more. And he posts his poetry on his timeline all the time, every day. He writes poetry every day. And he's published a book of his poetry. It was a huge passion of his, as much as it is mine. Wanting to work on his poetry was something that was, for him, not, not being as established as a poet, necessarily. Although I think his poetry is probably more widely read because of his platform than a lot of the full-time poets out there. I think Vincent is becoming more acknowledged as a poet as this goes on. But my point is, working on his poetry was a way to open that dialogue that I think he was a lot more open-minded to than if I'd approached him with a film role. Um, and his genuine passion and or desire to participate in the arts, which you can see in a lot of the theater roles he's done and a lot of the independent work he's done. And also as a spoken word poet, I actually flew to New York to watch him perform his poetry in a theater in New York called Joe's Pub which is something he's been doing, I think, for a long time, for like 15 years or something. And I think this is true of humans throughout history. If someone's very established at one thing, look for what their passion is. If someone is like a really accomplished novelist, then you want to get to know them better. You might find that they're a budding violinist as well. Um, and that they're pretty good at the violin. It's just something that they don't get all the attention for that they would like to necessarily. But if you can help them do that. Yeah, there is a bigger chance that they pay attention to you because you also share something in common. That's very, very interesting. And when did you start, uh, Lawrence, writing poetry? Is this something that you have been doing as long as you've been acting or is something new? When did you actually start writing? I started writing poetry. It, it came out of my acting journals. It came out of stream of consciousness and character backgrounds and basically just sort of uh, it's called emotional journaling in method acting where you just mm. write everything out and out of it i started to connect i think to a part of myself that was very deep down that was like in a dream state that was very subconscious and seeing how those symbols and language affected me emotionally was a part of the method acting process and also when i read them back after some years I realized that there was something there. I could shape it into something more. I could take that prose and turn it to poetry. And that I was also sort of pulling out classical references from my work in Shakespeare and my love of the romantic poets. And that actually poetic language and visual art was helping me get deeper into the process of method acting and helping me and inspiring me as a writer too. Around this time, it was a while ago, some years ago, I started writing this screenplay about my late father, who uh, was a notorious art critic. He passed when I was three, so I never got to know him as a man. So I, I always heard he was such a fascinating character. He was so sort of dynamic, and they would get him on TV to debate about art all the time. 
he had his own magazine, Modern Painters. There we go. I've got some here. Mm, nice. Uh, okay. Yeah. About half his bookshelf is the books from his books written by he him was a, his libraries. An art, he was an art critic and a, and a writer as well, right? Yeah. He was not, and he wrote 15 books on art. And so this was his first book. Here's a good one. Okay. So, and I've read all of these back front numerous times over. This was Beautiful as Modern Painters. It was a collection of his articles that were from the Modern Painters magazine because that was such, it was such an iconic magazine in the art world in England because it went deeper and further and was more hard hitting than basically any art magazine that was around at the time or that had been put out for a long time. And arguably since much of art criticism can said to have been basically just sort of receded back into its sort of sleepy status quo and that it's not as hard hitting and it's not as controversial as it used to be. Mm. Um, and maybe there's different reasons for that. Commerce and uh, mass media has a lot to do with that. A lot of yeah. uh, magazines now are kind of glossy magazines, you know, like fashion magazines mm. and stuff like that. And the state of art writing isn't really being challenged like he challenged it. He would look at other critics' articles and he would really dig into them and find what the problems were with them. That's why he was such a, a brilliant debater and such like a, a naughty figure. He would show up to lectures and stuff and start heckling from the audience. And <laughs> it's quite funny listening back to some of those recordings. I don't know that that's necessarily appropriate now or such like an unconventional approach. I think that it was very specific to him. So I wanted to write this screenplay about him and find out about him. And so I went to his archive at the Tate Museum and digitized a lot of stuff and worked with them to, and they helped me do that and gave me the time. And we pulled out everything. He had boxes of letters to like David Hockney, other writers of the time, gallerists. And it, it was, it was actually really enlightening to see all that and to see his letters and to see all his articles and to read through his books so many times over to find out basically the secrets of what was going on in his world because he was really at the center of the contemporary art movement of in that was going on in England. When galleries were popping up all over Soho in the late 60s, he was there. He was going to all the openings. He was at Angela mm. Flowers' first openings and he was at um, Kasman's openings when Kasman was launching David Hockney. And he lived in the basement of David Hockney's boyfriend, which is how they met when he was like mm. 1920 and starting to first get his first jobs as a writer and things like that, just trying to make his way. And David Hockney would come over all the time and that's how they met and started talking. He was just a part of the culture. And I think that's also what has inspired me to try and participate in the digital art culture as much as well, seeing what came out of it, the adventures that you can have. Because it's one big adventure that we're all sort of participating in. You find your own adventure. But yeah, so writing the screenplay about him, I won a number of awards for that screenplay just recently. It was passed around Hollywood a bit and uh, I was presented an award by Shane Black who wrote Iron Man series. I still got it in my back pocket. There's still a lot of interest in it. Maybe now is a good time to look at making it actually because mm. a lot of producers, this was a couple of years ago, a lot of producers were like, why would we talk about art now? Why now? Like, this is a fascinating mm. story. It's well written. Why now? And I think a lot of the reasons as to why now has changed and elevated and the discussions about the value of art have really been, have really been called into question, come into play in, in our world. 
a lot more. And those dynamic discussions between digital arts and traditional art are where those intersections come into play are, are a lot more dynamic than they were before, especially in, since 1990. Um, yeah, from what I saw in the last 30 years of art criticism in the art world, since 1990, it's sort of been a lot less dynamic, really, a lot less interesting to me. But in the last few years, I think the whole art landscape has been ruptured, challenged, pushed, pulled, and is reforming into something completely different. Especially in our space with what's happening with digital art. And what do you mean when you say it was more dynamic before 1990? What was the, the difference that you are seeing? Well, I think partly it was the depth of writing and the philosophical perspectives that people were that were taking and how far they would go with their ideological searches. I think there was a lot that happened with the avant-garde like in the 70s. What sort of came to pass after that that basically made its way and proliferated and became an establishment within the institutions like museums was supposed to be revolutionary at first. Like there's been plenty of revolutionary movements in art. And the most recent one, say, that came out of the late 60s and has sort of just been progressing and becoming more of an establishment has sort of taken hold and really sort of been cemented as a as an institution in itself, which was the very thing it was rallying against. There was a sense of anarchy to the avant-garde in the 60s that that just became the establishment. And now the most sort of commercially viable kitsch stuff is what used to be avant-garde in its uh, nature. Um, an artist like Jeff Koons, for instance, what he was he sort of just became the joke at first what he was doing was a commentary ironic about commercialism and capitalism it, it but then eventually it just became the thing it was mm. rallying against those top selling artists in the traditional art world i think are what used to be anarchistic and are now have now become the establishment um and where is mm. where is beauty and all that Beauty been so far pushed into the corners of the museums and, and of the dialogue and the beauty and storytelling and those things that appeal to the human soul, the precious faculties of the human soul, so unimportant to us now that what is happening to our world in, in terms of culture? Uh, will we allow ourselves to be um, sort of ideologically, artistically and culturally dominated by capitalism in terms of what is being thrust upon us uh, by corporations and the like. like is our mind f so full of cereal boxes and billboards that we don't want to take control of our imaginations take back control of our imaginations for that to be something enlightening and invigorating to the human spirit and rather just sort of sink back into that that icon iconography of say the mega visual tradition of billboards and advertising And just say, yeah, this is just a part of our world. So let's just grab these symbols. Let's just grab these aesthetics of pastiche pink and yellow and just make that just a part of it. And hey, that's a commentary on the world that we live in. Okay. But I think that there's another commentary that could be made, which is about our potential as human beings, that our potential for what we could see in the world. One that's in, in tune with nature, one that's in tune with the imagination and the best parts of ourselves, the, the best parts of our dreams. 
and I'm going to drift off into thinking about a poem that I'm writing if I keep talking about it. But um, <laughs> no, that's amazing. I mean, it's a very deep thoughts, and it invites us to to reflect right on what's happening. And on the same line, Lawrence, what do you think about? Because you you've been in the digital art space since I believe early 2021, maybe before. I know you were one of the first artists on Kick at Nunk and collecting as well. And you have seen how everything has kind of moved or evolved over the years, the last two, three years. So how do you feel about where we are right now in terms of the digital art space? Do you see uh, opportunities there for artists that are taking this as a full-time profession? Do you see it kind of a positive place? Do you think we are moving to somewhere, somewhere better? What are your thoughts comparing it to the early days and everything that has happened until today? What, what do you feel about So from, you mean like the early days of Hiss Nunk and like early 2021? Yeah. And... The, the different platforms, the different marketplaces, the different exhibitions, galleries that are now in the space. How is it now compared to when you started? I mean, we were kicking about around the first object for object, weren't we? All of that was just discovering a, a passion for art that was without agenda, that was just about seeking a connection and through art and communicating our ideas and learning about others. It was interesting to watch that take root until it became, it kind of took off a bit, really, didn't it? Um, which was great to see. And there was such like a purity to them. Then I guess, you know, I can see with Zero One, they're doing some similar stuff in terms of creating art for art. And it was really interesting to see that, to see how that quite passionate approach became something much more than it initially was. That that was a strategy that took off. It wasn't the only strategy. There were artists blowing up on Super Rare at the time, making huge sales as well. So that was a good strategy for them. It was sort of a bit of both. It was like going all in on art for art's sake and watching that blow up. And then watching, I guess, what was considered the high-end stuff take off in a completely different way. I don't think that the passion for digital art has faded or been anywhere near affected as the collectibles and other digital assets that we've seen in the last year and a half that we've been living through a bear market. I don't know if it's, has it been a year and a half or two years? I can't remember. Since the BFPs started to go down in value? Yeah, or, well, the whole or, market, really. Yeah. yeah, so I think we're in 2023. To be honest, I think it was early 2022, so around one year and a half probably since it kind of started to go a bit down and the volume started to go down. I think the peak was towards September, November 2021. I, yeah. I think that's yeah, I think that's correct. In terms of the total volume, right? Yeah. The 2022 started to go a bit down, I believe. I mean, the only thing that's really been affected and I think where that early hen days and that community from where it started to like the peak of it, let's say, in terms of like it, it taking off to say in November, 2021 to now, it has been the price of the token by which it's traded. I mean, mm. personally, a lot of stuff I was collecting then, and I guess I'm fortunate to be among that, that group. It's increased in, in value in terms of the tokens, in terms of the, the price, how many Tezos people are paying for it, for instance, but just mm. the price of Tezos yeah. has gone way down. That's talking about market forces. But what I want to say about that, I think, is the resilience. If you genuinely are there for the art and you de genuinely love and believe in the art, it's going to be way less affected in the bad times than, in, than any other reason that you could collect anything. 
an emotional connection to a work of art is going to survive a lot of bad things. And it's much like anything in life, like relationships or things that we really value. We are willing to withstand some pain to see the other side and to have loyalty to it. And if we don't, if our motivations are anything else, then it gets kind of complicated, right? I feel like it's the simplest yeah. approach, actually, is if you're collecting things and making things that you genuinely believe in. That is the easiest approach, in my opinion, or the simplest approach. You don't really have to worry about anything. If you are collecting things you really like, either because yeah, you want to have them in your collection or because you want to support artists, then it doesn't really matter what happens with the price. Yeah. And how does the market affect your art in any way, Lawrence, or you try to be completely disconnected on your creation, creative process and what happens in the market? Yeah, you asked me a very interesting question about platforms too that I, I want to answer. But mm. I think, yeah, please, please. I think it's interesting to see Super Air has onboarded a, a ton of new artists since the end of last year as well. And mm -hmm. that opening up a lot of new voices too, which is sort of leveling out effect, I think, of the hierarchy that used to exist. It used to be that the, the Tezos artists were very like scrappy, sort of very punk-esque and like the underdogs. <laughs> and the yeah. super rare artists were like the blue chip, sell for a hundred ETH sort of, they were up, yeah. they were up yeah. there and we were down here kind of thing in terms of digital status. And now that's, mm -hmm. I think that playing field has been leveled out quite a lot. And that's cool to see. It's becoming more about the art itself and things like Manifold where artists are in charge of their own contract and it's sort of a platformless way of minting in a way. I think all of those things have really actually progressed in a very positive way and the diversity of platforms, all these things mean that an artist's own platform is the most important thing. Like each of our own mm -hmm. platforms is what matters. It's become more chain agnostic. It's become more sort of cross-platform and I think it being indicated that the value is in the artist's own career and the artist's own that work about that they've created and that that is what collectors are purchasing is the work about from that artist and not a token from that platform mm -hmm. um and the more things go that way i think the, the more sense it's going to make to people from the outside too uh, right right because then It's more about the art and the artist and not so much about learning how does this platform works and what are the different mechanics that exist here. I didn't think about that previously, but you're right. It, it makes it much easier for outsiders to actually go for the art and the artist more than the platform. And do you think it's confusing for artists, Lawrence, the new artists, to understand all these dynamics? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's confusing for me sometimes. I mean... <laughs> but also yeah. I've had some very good experiences working with different platforms out here. Like I just work with Maker's Place and they have a whole team that help you with the drop and they, they care about the different aspects of it. They want it to be well. They're also doing a lot of digital art installations around the world and gallery exhibitions, which takes a lot of effort. And, you, and we need people to, to organize those things and to set up those events and to, to put in that work. I definitely don't want to dismiss the value of, of a platform that's operating like a Web3 gallery. Um, So, and those options I think are really valuable, and, but not all platforms need to be that either. Like Manifold is kind of the opposite. Manifold's like, okay, here's the tools and you do everything else, mm -hmm. which I think is great yeah. too. They also have very different purposes and weighing up where to drop and how to drop a piece is 
almost just a big part of our lives as artists right now, I think, is always considering where is the best place to drop this piece and how will the dynamics be, what will the collector base be, and, and all those things. That It's important because it's like a traditional artist figuring out how he wants to set up an exhibition. Another consideration we have now, and this is happening more and more, is do we also want an exhibition? Do we want this to be an, an mm. IRL exhibition that's hosted uh, at a, a digital art venue? Will that be mm -hmm. immersive? Or will that happen during a convention, an NFT art convention? Mm -hmm. Will it be a digital installation at uh, NFT NYC or NFC Lisbon or Art Basel mm -hmm. coming up? We've got Art Basel in December. It's confusing or you can look at it like there's just a lot of options. And sometimes you just got to commit and just not really know if something's going to work. But as long as you believe in the art itself and just commit to a mm -hmm. plan, then that's all you can do sometimes. And I mean, a question that is related to these, Lawrence, if you were starting today, or if you had an artist friend that is starting, what would be your recommendation? How should he or she start today in terms of what you just mentioned, like which platform should he or she use Manifold? If once he starts to get some traction, how to deal with these exhibitions, these IRL events, should they try to get there? What would be your basic advice for artists that are starting in this world today? I think it would be the same advice as if I was talking to an artist of any medium or an actor or a, a budding writer or filmmaker. And that would be to focus on your art first and foremost and to make that as fully realized as possible because that's what will attract the people that you need to help you. All of these things we're talking about, collectors, platforms, other your peers, they're, they're in your life because they're attracted to what you've created. And if you can make that as attractive as possible, then mm. you'll bring in all sorts of people on this adventure. Right, what? makes sense. It's like a magnet, it's similar to when I write. The good thing about writing, in my case, is different from poetry, but when I share news, when I share opinions, I kind of attract like-minded people. It's like a magnet to attract the, the readers. And it's the same for artists in a visual medium. Focus on your art, try to make the best you can, and eventually you will find your audience. That makes a lot of sense. And Lawrence, we have been talking almost for an hour now, and we haven't mentioned some of your collections, some of your artwork. This is a question I've asked other artists that came to the podcast, and it's a tricky one. It's not easy. So maybe for you it is, but what's the artwork or a collection that you have created that you are most proud of? You're going to ask me that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can mention multiple. Have you thought about that? Is there one that comes to your mind immediately? I hate you. <laughs> no, I, I think... Could be a collection. You have collections with many artworks, like uh, series? Yeah, there's one I'm working on right now, actually. That's an exhibition. And half of it's collaborations with Vincent. Half of it's my solo work. It's going to be immersive and cinematic. Hmm. And working with AI to expand how we tell stories poetically that has been the most challenging thing i think i've worked on artistically and it's been the most demanding thing and i've been working on it since the start of the year i still remember having coffee in new york with vincent about it back in april we both have created triptychs that are like chapters in our, our lives like three acts of our lives that are connected to the story of New York in a way and our, our experiences in New York. And I think that's been quite a precious thing for both of us. 
I know when I sent through the initial drafts, the first edits to Vincent for his triptych, for what I created at the visuals, he came back with a ton of notes. And I was like, I got to start all over again. It's something we've been working on since April. And I'm excited to see how it unfolds and how we can work with like immersive cinematic spaces to elevate that story as well. Right. Um, so it's the thing I'm working on right now. Um, I would like to think of also the Eden, my Eden's Afterburns, which was a dissolving painting with Ruben Fro, adapting mm. Val Kilmer's poetry and my poetry into the story that we told with paintings by Henrik Dahlin, Tanya Revillas, Goldcat, Jeremy Lipkin, mm. and Ksenia Berdinov, who were all, I mean, then very accomplished painters and who were all now, you know, some of the most sort of popular artists in the space. And we got to transform their, these gorgeous paintings that they created into this environment that Ruben created. And he did his thing with the dissolving paintings, which I think you're mm-hmm, a big mm-hmm. collector of his dissolving paintings too. Yeah, I had, some, I had some of his early works. Yeah, those were from the early days on Ticket Nang, right? Those were some of what we considered the grails, of the grails on the Tezos blockchain. And so I loved working with Ruben and being a part of that series. We've done three different dissolving painting projects now. I did a Whaler's Elegy with Ruben, and that was just with me and him. Mm-hmm. And then we did a collaboration with Heinrich and Vincent called Flood of the Soul, which is part of Poetics Exhibition. Then we did the collaboration with Maiden's Afterburn on, on Nifty Gateway with Val Kilmer and those painters I mentioned. It's been really fun being a part of the dissolving painting series. And uh, I think the history of it's really interesting and very tied to the community and the culture. It was fun telling stories in that way. That whole poetics collection that I just mentioned as well was collaborations with a lot of my peers yeah. and a lot of artists that I really admire and look up to and follow and work with all the time. Obviously, Tanya Revillas. I think the piece with Tanya kicked off the exhibition. The piece with Tanya and Val Kilmer, mm-hmm. both poetry. And Val's a super rare genesis with Michelle Petrelli. And then we closed with the collaboration with Vincent and Heinrich and Ruben. And in between, it was collaborations with a lot of the others that were really making strides from the early days of basically his signal community. There was a lot of people that couldn't be included because I couldn't have an exhibition of like... Uh, yeah, 100 artists. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 100, 200, yeah. It was a lot of artists. It was like 25, 30 artists maybe that participated in poetics. Yeah, yeah. And you coordinated it, uh, Lawrence. You were the main coordinator of the whole exhibition. Yeah. Inviting the artists and working with each of them independently. That's uh, how long... Because I was looking at the collection today, actually, I took some notes on the collapse you did. And at the time when you were releasing those, I didn't see how many they were. There were so many, as you mentioned. And this takes a tremendous amount of time to coordinate, to work together, to actually end up saying like, okay, the piece is completed. And in your case, in these pieces, they are visual, but they also have the audio part. They are like, in many cases, like small mini shorts. They move, they have like story. So how long did it take? To actually work on this whole poetics collection it was like a whole year or how, how long was it? it was about six months it was about mm-hmm. six months and some of the pieces had been in works for longer than that but and those that seed of a desire to work with a, another artist could have been said to have gone back even longer in some cases that's really where peace comes out of it's like the desire to collaborate with somebody you see something in somebody's work in my case i see something poetic in their work and that something starts to take shape in my subconscious and in my notebooks. And then 
it, it sort of evolves from there. But the bringing it all together of poetics was, was about six months of work. I feel like for a full, complete exhibition, it's about the time I need to bring something together. One-off pieces can happen a lot quicker, but it's funny. Even one-off pieces sometimes can take months. That I'm with them for months. There's pieces I have now I'm working on that have been with me for a long time. But each piece has their own sort of organic evolution into mm-hmm. how it comes into being. And there's seeds of ideas that I still pick up from like two years ago, and, and I'll go back to my notebooks and see it. I'll be like, oh yeah, this is, now is a great time to do this. So yeah, it has to come together organically, really. It's hard because plan it. it's hard to plan it, but reality does dictate deadlines. Like there was a definite start and end date to the poetics exhibition that I needed to have everything done by, and uh, that we all did. Mm-hmm. Like, I think of that series as well, False Prophets, which is just a, a wonderful tongue-in-cheek series that we did for the poetics with Jenny Pisanen and mm-hmm. Tanya Villas and Von Doyle and Alona One. And actually, the the figure that Alona One created, his face ended up becoming the icon of the exhibition, like when you see the collection. And that was our first sort of statements about AI, actually. That piece was a statement about, it was called False Prophets, playing on the idea mm. that it was like fake art or something. Yeah. And the way that came together in different group chats as well, working with each artist individually and then pulling them all together into a group chat. All the False Prophets into one group chat. Once those pieces were developed to a certain point, getting all the artists from that series together to discuss how it was coming together, how we were going to do the Twitch space and how we were going to release it. I love collaborating with people in that way. It's great to have a team as well. It's great to have a team Mm -hmm. of people that you can rely on, that your peers, that have your back and that you have theirs and the people that you really respect their work and they respect yours. It's a strong feeling. We're tied in the conviction of our imaginations and the realization of our imaginations in, out in the world. That's a beautiful thing to rally together around. Yeah, so just enjoy being a part of the culture. I had some experience uh, with a blind gallery, working with artists and especially like group shows. And you're right, like also when there is this communication between the artists and they are all part of something, then they can either give feedback or support each other, give ideas. There is like a special vibe. It's all, it's like, it's, as you said, it's like a team. And yeah, you're all trying to push each other, giving advice and selling online, selling the digital art can be very stressful. It's uh, tough. The, the minting day, as we call it, can be tough. And it's much better to do it with a team than alone. Mm. And most artists are usually doing it alone and it can be very stressful. So yeah, I can relate to the exhibition and doing it with a group, with a team. And I think that's why many artists and what you mentioned earlier about uh, working with Maker's Place and working with uh, Super Rare, how that also is very valuable to artists because their support on planning, on the marketing side, on helping you get the piece exposed and finally get the selling. That's also very valuable to artists, right? The support from these professionals. And it's something you mentioned earlier. And Lawrence, we chatted from time to time and you were uh, sometimes sharing some artists. Actually, I have Elio Santos, he's a good friend of mine, and you recommended him through DMs. Really? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, you told me, hey, you should look at Elio, he's doing some great stuff. Cool. I think it was the early days of AI, as you mentioned, and Elio was playing with AI early, early on. You're somebody that is, you know, aware of what's happening, you look at other artists to collect yourself. So, another tough question for you, Lawrence, if you had to mention or recommend three emerging artists that you really enjoy, that you are excited about, 
who would you send? Who would you mention? Well, it's funny. Initially, one came to mind that I don't want to recommend yet because I want to keep him my secret for now <laughs> because I'm planning a project with him and I think he's just going to blow up. So you can't have that one, but I'll give you <laughs> Kopf Gestaltung. Do you know him? Okay. He does a Chrome cinematic work. Well, I think I, I haven't seen that. What? Kopf name Gestaltung. Again? It's K-O-P-F. G E L Oh wait, G E S T Gest G E S D A L T U N G. Kopf Gestaltung. It's a German name. Um Okay, I'll look for him. Yeah. And and by the way, uh, for people listening e either through the podcast or now in the recording, all these collections, all the artists that we're chatting about will be included in the description. So you will have the direct links to all the artists and collections. You can check the full description of the episode. And yeah, you were saying, Lawrence, the other two? Yeah, Kopf. Kopf is a... Well, Kopf I've collaborated with a few times. His cinematics are exceptional. I think he's one of the most underrated artists in our space. But people are starting to take notice. So that's really interesting. Then I would recommend Ksenia Borodinov. She's a painter. Her surreal paintings are like... Her imagination is incredible. But then... The way she's able to execute it is like a, a Dutch Golden Age painter. Like everything, her precision, the, just the quality of her work is just unbelievable. And like she just did a Pepe, which is a hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> But she did a noble Pepe, nice. and it's absolutely blown up. It's got like I don't know, ten thousand likes or something like that. She's an emerging artist. Like her following is quite small, or relatively, it's only a few thousand. I've collaborated with her a couple times now. She was a part of the Maidens Afterburn exhibition. And just everything she puts out has so much imagination in it. And she just takes you into another world completely. And I just love to see that. And it's really hard to choose the final one because there's like 30 people I want to mention. Yeah. So many. Um, what defines emerging artists? How would you define? Emerging, that's why I think it's so used because it could be somebody that is just starting or it could be somebody that already has recognition. So it's very open, to be honest. It's... The, the whole range, I would say, of somebody that has a few thousand followers or somebody that is already selling quite well. That is always the next step, the next level. So, I mean, it's very, very open. Uh, yeah, Lawrence, I mean, definition. most artists in Web3 are emerging. Um, some are not, of course. But, well, here's my logic. I've gone with a 3D cinematic artist. I've gone with a painter. So now I'll choose a sculptor. Mm -hmm. KX. Okay. Yeah. KX. You, you don't know KX either? I don't think so. Great. I have to. I have to. <laughs> I'm very happy to recommend KX. He's been doing, he's got this incredible voice as an artist. It's really distinct. But he's been creating these little vignettes and these like figurative sculptures that are, are so sort of of his, you can see of his hand and his imagination. And that definitely transport you as well to, to another world. And I like fairy tales. Each one is like a fairy tale or an allegory. And so it's no surprise that we've collaborated, I think, three or four times. Another interesting aspect of his work is that he does, yeah, you can get like a photograph of his sculpture and the stuff that we've done has been cinematic animations of his sculpture, but you can also get AR versions of his sculpture that you can place in metaverse galleries and like walk around them and, mm. and that they're fully interactive and 3D and, and you can move the sculpture around like this. And I think that'll be really valuable for the way that metaverses develop and metaverse exhibitions that it's not just a still image on the mm -hmm. wall, although that can be cool, that it's this object that you can place in the center of an exhibition. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, thanks so much. I'll look for them and I'll include the links in the description. I think uh, you mentioned a very diverse set of artists. That's great. So, Lawrence, we've been talking for more than an hour now. It was a great chat. It was great to have an extended conversation. Thanks so much for all your knowledge and sharing your experience. Also, what's happening with the Hollywood strike, which I think is solved now. We'll see. And looking forward for your, your piece, man, with Vincent. I'll be waiting for that one. I think it's a series, you said. So it's a it's series a, of work. It's a series of work. We'll do an exhibition in New York, you know, that will have a, a component in LA and maybe London too. And it's coming up end of October. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's almost here. Almost here. One, one two month. months away. Kind of wish it was two months, but it's one month. Oh, I thought yeah. it was not. Okay. End of October. So one month away. Okay. Nice. Wish me luck. Fantastic, Lawrence. Thanks so much. Yeah, good luck. You, you don't need it, but yeah, good luck. Always good to see you, man. I think the last time we saw each other was in New York. I think oh, New York and to, yeah, then this one. This one. All right. the, Are you coming to yeah. Basel? Miami? Yes. I don't know. The thing is, my parents live in Miami, in Florida. So I used to visit them in December. But this year, they are coming to Spain. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I have to see. I would like to. But it depends on the dates they are coming and when exactly they will be here. Uh, I'll we'll be there. See. Will yeah. you be there? I've got three installations participating in three different exhibitions there. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, let's see, let's see if I can make it. Hopefully. I have to chat cool. with my parents. I can okay. schedule it Fingers the right crossed. way. All right. All right, brother. <laughs> Great to see you. Thanks so Thank much. You. Enjoy the Bye. sun. Bye-bye. <laughs>